Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 18, starting with verse 12. Last week, or the week before Easter, we saw an overview of ancient Greek heritage to see the challenges Paul was facing in evangelizing Achaia, which is southern Greece. Today we're going to see Paul's eventual departure from Achaia and his trek back east, thus ending Paul's second missionary journey, starting with verse 12. Now when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So in context, what we see is that we leave off with Paul in Corinth, in the Achaean province, and there's a great harvest there. A lot of people come to the Lord, a church has started there, and you see just before the end of uh, the last time we were in this chapter that the Lord directly comes to Paul and comforts him and says it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. Keep preaching. I got your back, so to speak. So here in this section, we see that some of the Jews are not buying the, Messiah, the whole Messiah concept, and they take Paul before Gallio for upsetting the uh, status quo. In verse 12, we're introduced to the historic Gallio. If you research this, you'll see that this man existed, as everyone in the Bible did, and his name was Junius Aeneas Gallio. He was the brother of the Roman philosopher, famous philosopher Seneca, and Gallio ruled Achaia from A.D. 51 through A.D. 53. It was a short time span. What I find interesting is that the Bible puts a lot of detail, especially Luke. In, in Luke and Acts, he's a historian, so he puts a lot of detail in the scripture. He talks about Claudius' expulsion of the Jews uh, three weeks back from Rome, and we know that that actually existed, that decree. We see Gallio's rulership. So what we find in the Bible is, through the Bible, we can actually pinpoint these journeys that Paul made and the, the pretty much the, with a, a fair degree of, of certainty when the letters were also written to the different churches. But Gallio was a proconsul, which means he was appointed a rulership position by Rome. And his history, secular history, said Gallio had pretty much a good reputation with the people he ruled over. Verse 14. This is, this is good. You've got to catch this. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews. You've got to catch that there. I love this. Just when Paul was going to open his mouth and defend himself, Gallio cuts him off and saves the day without any input from Paul. Now, this is a Roman official that did this. This is a, boy, that was a close call moment, if there was ever any. At a certain point in our lives, especially if we had a rough upbringing, we learn to be survivors, don't we? And sometimes we adopt the motto that if you want done something right, you've got to do it yourself, right? By the same token, Paul no doubt figured he needed to articulate, he needed to mount his defense, and he was ready to go. And I guess my question is, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a dire situation? And you're thinking about, how am I going to get myself out of this? And you're trying to be, use your intelligence, use your wits, and all of a sudden, like the Lord comes in and does a miracle... And the problem is solved without any intervention from yourself, like a miracle happened, right? Remember two Sundays ago, the Lord assured Paul, preach, 
Don't keep silent. I have many people in this, in this area. Don't worry about the outcome. And we could take that same thing for ourselves. We have to trust him. And God many times may see if we are going to trust him or we're going to go to full autonomy. I got it, Lord. Don't worry about it. I know exactly what I'm going to do, right? And we have to look at that. Now, I'm quite sure that those of you who are going to work tomorrow, I'm not saying that you're going to go to sleep tonight and the Lord's going to serenade you in the morning, wake you up, have your eggs and bacon already prepared, and your clothes picked out. Okay, I don't see that happening. But I am assuring you that God, if you allow him to, will have great sovereignty and he'll have great uh, input into your life. And there's the balance. God wants us to use our brains and plan. But he also, if we allow him to, he will be a part of our life and he will help us through life. And some of you may be going through that right now. You're going through your life and there's a lot of situations that you don't have any control over. Maybe it's a relationship issue. Maybe it's a financial issue. Maybe it's an issue with your kids. And you're saying, Lord, what am I going to do here? But trust him. Trust him. And ask him to take first place in your life and let him help you throughout your situations. If this was on court TV, the charge would have been against Paul, an unsanctioned religion. Therefore, a prima facie case of being illicit. And that's just a legal term that means on face value, Paul, what you're doing is wrong. It goes against our law, Jewish law, and it goes against Roman law. The ruling, Gallio ruled, no. Christianity, that's encompassed in Judaism. That's pretty much what he was saying. He said, don't bother me, for the most part, with your laws, your names, and your rules. I don't want to rule on that. So he's basically encompassing this new sect, uh, this, the Christians, in with Judaism. He doesn't want to get involved. And that's true. Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, but I did not come to destroy it. And there's a big difference. Jesus didn't come to destroy what God had already set up. He came to fulfill it. And there's a big difference between eradication and fulfillment. So the final ruling was that Christianity was a religio licita, according to the Roman Empire. The Roman government initially allowed this new sect some breathing room. And Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And in this case, he turned it to favor the Christians so they could build up that evangelistic base, that uh, foundation there. And we see that today, don't we? There's no difference between mankind back then and today. We have three branches of government. We have the executive branch, the president. We have the judicial branch, right, the judges. And we have the legislative branch, the ones that propose the new laws, okay? And sometimes, if you look at um, our, our history, some, not many times, but sometimes the rulings have been in our favor as people of God, and sometimes they haven't been. There was a recent ruling. It was called In Re Rachel L., and what it has to do is, uh, those of you who are into this, the, it had to do with homeschooling out in California. One judge decided by divine fiat, and I say that facetiously, that he's going to decide that parents don't have the right to homeschool their kids. He put very burdensome restrictions on them. Now, not all Christians homeschool their kids, but a majority of them out in California do. They make up the, the, the large base. So it really hurt the Christians trying to teach their kids not only math and reading and science, but also teaching them uh, from the scripture. And we'll see how that plays out in the courts. Um, even the legislature, that one point in time where they uh, put forth the ban on partial birth abortion, and then when Bush came in in the executive branch, he 
said, yes, there should be a ban on it. And then a judge came and overturned it. And you see sometimes the fighting between the three branches of government. Again, sometimes in our favor and sometimes not. Verse 17. And I bring this up because it's, it's an interesting point people look at and they don't understand what it is. But it says, all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. This could mean one of two things. It could mean the Greeks beat Sosthenes because of anti-Semitic feelings, the ethnic Greeks. Or it could mean that the Hellenized Jews and some Greeks as a group beat him because they lost the case against the Christians and they held him responsible. It's hard to tell because the Greek word for Greek, Hellenes, is a contextual word. Sometimes it could mean indigenous or ethnic Greeks. And sometimes in context, it could mean those people who have been in the Greek uh, domination for so long that they become, they become assimilated into Greek culture. So it's hard to tell, but I would say it was the first one. Uh, and this is more of a historical note that Luke uh, adds here. It doesn't really add or take away from the story. Verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. And I'm going to go through this um, on the projector to show you what, what's going on here, because it can get a little confusing, if, especially in your mind if you don't have a picture of what the Middle East looks like or the uh, Mediterranean area. So what you have here is, uh, and the green arrows show basically Paul's second missionary journey. Okay, As we've been going through the scripture, we've been... In, in all these areas. And now we're here. Okay, this is the Isthmus of Corinth, which connects the mainland of Greece to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And over here is Centria, which is the seaport of Corinth. He sailed eastward to Ephesus. Um, it was actually considered at this time the Roman province of Asia, but we know now is Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Uh, Paul leaves Aquila and Priscilla here, and then he sails this way, southeast, to Caesarea, which is a seaport city, which is 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem. He comes down to Jerusalem to keep the feast, heads back north to Antioch, which was the sending church, thus ending Paul's second missionary journey. And then we see in verse 23 that he starts his third missionary journey into Galatia and Phrygia, which is over here. I could be a tour guide, right? I could moonlight as a tour guide. Okay. Verse 18, we see that Paul takes a vow, and there's a shaving of his head. He cuts his hair off. Now, this vow was possibly a Nazarite vow. If you're familiar with the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 6 in the Torah, you see that uh, a person would grow his hair long, and at the end he would cut it off after a prescribed portion of days, and then he would offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. 
And there's other things involved, like not being near or contacting a dead body, uh, abstaining from uh, alcohol or grape products, etc. And the bottom line was you were supposed to abstain. It was a, a voluntary vow that you took to abstain from worldly or corrupting influences and to bring a, a, yourself a closer devotion to God. And the question is, well, I don't understand. Paul uh, talked about grace. He talked about not being under bondage of the law. What gives here? Why is he doing this? Well, he wasn't bound by the law. The answer is this was completely voluntary. It wasn't something that was necessary for salvation. It was not obligatory. Uh, very similar to our fasting. If somebody tells you you must fast on this particular date, they're not really keeping in with the scripture. That's legalistic. Uh, fasting is something that you do voluntarily. It's between you and the Lord. Every Christian should desire a closer relationship with God. And since the age of grace, our relationship with our Lord is totally voluntary. You could decide to fast. You could decide that there's a certain sin in your life that is really uh, bothering you and hindering your walk, and you're going to really make a concerted effort to try to you know, confess that sin and not do it. You could set aside more time to pray. Uh, I know people that get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and pray for an hour or read the Bible. And that's totally something that you do. It's a, it's a voluntary thing. And we do different things as Christians to try to, to get and have a closer relationship with our Creator. And over here in verse 21, it says that he says he must keep the feast. So he leaves Ephesus and sails east because he wants to keep this feast. Now, understand again, this is a tie-in to what we just talked about with the Nazarite vow. The feast that he must keep was not necessary for salvation. This was something that on um, three of the feasts, the adult males were required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Most likely, this was the Passover feast, which is one of those three. And this was an opportunity for Paul, think about it, for the Passover. A lot of Jewish people would flood Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders. This is a great opportunity for the, the Apostle Paul to reach these people for their Messiah. So he had them all in one spot, and they couldn't leave and it was like a captive audience, so to speak. And Paul seized any opportunity to spread the gospel, even if it meant harm to himself. Paul also says in verse 21, he says, I will return God willing. I want to read something in James 4.13, only three verses. James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or do that. And this is good for our society because we live in a, ve we live in a very fast-paced society, right? And we're just, as soon as most of us leave here, we've got something to do. You know, we have our, our itinerary for the whole week already probably planned out may even be the month of uh, April, already planned out. But Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And my question is, what are your plans? Think about the plans that you have. And then the next question to follow that is, is the Lord involved in those plans? He should be. I could sit here and I could have a plan for this church as the pastor. I could have a plan for the next five years and the things that I want to do. God forbid I could get run over by a bus. I hope that doesn't happen, 
But then somebody else will take over and their plans will be purported for the church. So my point to you is that as Christians, we should realize that God has sovereignty over the days of our life. And when we make our plans, is the Lord involved in our plans? Kind of goes back back to what we talked about before. Verse 23. It says, After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order strengthening all the disciples. So what did Paul do in Galatia and Phrygia? Well, he strengthened the disciples. The original Greek word it indicates or uh, tells us that this strengthening is actually a mixture of edification, building them up, and also encouragement. Paul was all about people. question is, are we? Are we all about people? You've heard, you've heard this, two things that are inevitable. What are they? Death and taxes. Everybody knows that. But I submit to you two things that are eternal, God and people, God and souls. Those are two things that are eternal. In Revelation 20, verse 11, in the great white throne judgment, it says, by his face, by the Lord's face, everything faded away. And the only thing that, and this was a bad thing because the Lord was judging the rebellious. Actually, I say it as it was in the past. It's already been written, but it is future to come. The great white throne judgment, when God judges the living and the dead, those who are rebellious and refused to uh, refuse his son Jesus and have rejected God's message of salvation. When his, when his face is presented, all creation flees away, and the only thing that's left is God and those souls. Isn't that amazing? All the stuff we see around us, the weather patterns, the building, you know, your car, your homes, it's all gone. And the only thing that's left in the end is God and people. That's it. And Paul got this. Paul knew this. And he devoted his whole life to bringing those two eternal things together. And the question is, do we do that as believers? When the Lord calls us home, will our investments come with us? Because if we've invested in the right things, they will. Or will our investments stay here? It depends. Now, I'm going to give you a list of investments that are not eternal. And it doesn't mean that these are inherently evil. They're not. They're inanimate. They're neutral. Okay? But they don't come with us. Houses, cars, bank accounts, jewelry, nice clothing, or even your body in its, in its present state, it's not going to come with you. Okay? The Lord's going to give us new bodies. Thank God for me. Because uh, my neck is always bothering me. But these things are not eternal. However, if you've invested in salvation, seeing people get saved, healing marriages, you know, being involved in, and loving someone enough to try to help them, you know, that they're getting a rough start or what have you, uh, discipling, being around people and teaching them the deeper things of God and growing them in the Lord, loving them. Now, those things will pay eternal dividends, right? What did Jesus say? The things that, that uh, get rusted and destroyed, gold and silver and all that, these break in and steal, those things are not eternal. But, you know, he said build eternal foundations, build eternal, uh, um, uh, make eternal dividends, okay? Joel Rosenberg, how many people are familiar with Joel Rosenberg? A few of you. Very well-renowned author, uh, writes a lot about the Bible and end times prophecy, uh, he talks a lot. He, he travels around the Middle East. Very interesting guy. Very good author. He's, he recently put out statistics on Muslims converted to Christ in the Middle East in Iraq, Iran, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, and Egypt. Most of these places, a church is not allowed, 
As a matter of fact, if you try to talk to a Muslim and you're a Christian and you try to you know, bring them to the, their Messiah, you could be punished by death. Pakistani law, 295C. Many people over there have been sentenced to death just for simply sharing their faith with a Muslim and uh, converting them to Christ. It's amazing. The numbers are in the tens of thousands. Without a church, without Bible studies, without whatever. These are the things that are happening over there. There's a lot of crowns in heaven for those responsible for these converts. And I would look at our own lives, and, and I pray. I'm like, Lord, am I making a difference? You know, we should all be praying that. Lord, am I making a difference? Lord, what else is it that I could do to uh, bring eternal dividends to the kingdom of heaven? Questions we have to ask ourselves. The Bible talks about winning crowns, the crowns of righteousness, the crowns of life. But the interesting thing is if you look in the beginning of the book of Revelation, when we stand before the Lord, we actually take those crowns off and we throw them at his feet because it was only through his giving us abilities and talents that we could earn those crowns. So everything goes back to the Lord again anyway. Verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John, meaning John the Baptist. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Here we're introduced to something, somebody I find very interesting, Apollos. And not a whole lot is written about him in the entire Bible, but he's a very interesting figure. What do we know about Apollos just from scripture? Well, he was Jewish. His name was Apollos. Now, that's interesting because there was, um, there was a man named Apollonius, where Apollos is actually short for. If you know your history, this is a man who, from the 3rd century B.C., was an epic poet, scholar, and director of the Alexandrian Library. So Apollos was probably named after him. Adding to that, that Apollos was born in Alexandria, Egypt, which was the center of culture and education, with a university atmosphere that boasted a library over 700,000 volumes. Now you say, yeah, so we have libraries like that. But before the printing press, that was pretty impressive. Alexandria was one of the three most prominent cities in the Mediterranean at that time. Apollos was probably Hellenized, as Paul was, meaning he was well-cultured and educated. He was eloquent, the Bible tells us. That means he was well-spoken and articulate. He was mighty in the scriptures, and the Bible says in verse 25, he was fervent in spirit. The Greek word for fervent is zeo, where we get zeal or zealous. Here's a man who is excited for the things of God. And there's a big difference between sitting under a leader who's going through the motions and one who has an excitement for God. As a matter of fact, there's a Greek word enthusiasmos, where we get enthusiasm. Not much to figure that one out. But enthusiasm, check this out, has at its root en, which means in, and theos, which means God. So enthusiasm, enthusiasm in its root has in God. I find it humorous when I was studying this because I'm thinking about the atheists who are trying to take in God we trust off the money and ch trying to take God out of every semblance of public life. 
Now I'm thinking, if they succeed in all that, what are they going to do? Petition the courts to take away our words from the dictionary, right? There's a lot of words that we have that have uh, biblical meaning or uh, a meaning that's rooted in God. And we talked about excruciating, excruciating pain. Excruciatus comes from, from the cross, something that's so painful it's like being crucified. And you can see this all throughout our language. Very interesting. Well, I find it interesting. But anyway, being excited and energized and enthusiastic is in its perfect form when one has a relationship with God. Now, I try to preach an upbeat message. You know, I think we should be upbeat for the Lord. We should be excited for the Lord. But the truth is, and I I always try to give the full picture, we all have our bad days, don't we? If you're new here and you say, boy, this guy's too excited and, and everything goes well his way, I can't be like that. Maybe this isn't for me. No, we all have our bad days. I have my bad days too. I get up some mornings and I'm in pain. But you know what? The difference is, and I'm not always thrilled about life circumstances, but the difference is I'm consistent. I'm consistent because in my journey through life while I'm here on this earth, God, I know God is with me. And I know that nothing can replace in my life knowing what God has done for me and my family and knowing that God is guiding me. No matter what life throws at me, yeah, I may emotionally be, you know, you know, I may have emotionally it bothers me or, or I'm sad or I feel a certain way, but I know that God is always with me. And when I regain my composure and I regain my thoughts, there's an evenness and a consistency there because God is with me. This Apollos here had everything. And by the world standard, he could have dwarfed Paul in his shadow. And some in the Corinthian church saw Apollo this way. And we go into Corinthians, we'll see that, 1 Corinthians. But remember, before Aquila and Priscilla corrected him, Apollos only had a partial message. He didn't have the whole picture. All he knew was the baptism of John. However, First and Second Corinthians indicates that he was probably something to behold in appearance. Now, we just went through all his qualities, right? And it does appear from what Paul says that Apollos may have, may have some type of dynamic appearance compared to the Apostle Paul. And he amassed the following. And it doesn't matter what Apollos knew or didn't know, people were drawn to him. And it's no different today. You know, that's why the Bible likens people to sheep. And we see cult leaders. We see leaders that rise up. We saw with Hitler, you know, under the guise of making Germany a stronger nation, a lot of people followed him. But we see if you follow the wrong leader, okay, just like sheep, they'll send you right off the cliff. And, that, and that's, that's just the way it is. And that's why the Bible talks about people like sheep. I want to talk about three people. I want to digress a little bit and talk about three people, three now that you know. I don't want to talk about whether they're good or bad. I want to talk about them as charismatic leaders and the people that follow them. I really don't want to talk about them, but the people that follow them. The three are Apollos, Obama, and Osteen. Okay? We're talking a little bit about Apollos. We're going to talk a little bit more about Apollos. Let's turn to Obama, political leader, right? For the record, I don't like any of the three candidates, so this isn't political. I'm not really thrilled by any of them, so I'm not going there. But here's a man who came on the scene, well-dressed, articulate, well-groomed. His, his voice, his speech, there's even a certain cadence to it. He says the right words, and people followed him. Now, today we probably know a lot about him, okay? Over the years, we've learned a lot about him. But when he first came out, people thronged him. They followed him. And if you talk to an Obama supporter and ask them, well, what does he stand for? They couldn't give you an answer because most of the things they didn't know, but they were drawn to him. 
And what concerns me is that God's people, I knew some Christians who were willing to follow him and didn't know what he stood for. That's kind of scary. The second, per, the second person is uh, Osteen, Joel Osteen, Christian leader. This guy's great. I've actually watched him. He, <laughs> he opens up his Bible, right, and he leaves it on the pulpit, and he walks away from it. Incidentally, that's the last time he refers to his Bible. It's the truth. I've watched it enough time to see that. And what he does is he's very articulate. He's a handsome guy. He's well-groomed. He's got a cadence to his speech. He says all the right words. He makes people feel good. Uh, The whole deal, right? And actually, I'm watching him, and I'm thinking, he either is looking at a teleprompter or this guy memorized the whole sermon because he never goes back to the pulpit. Now, that's good. I mean, he is unmatched when it comes to public speaking. But, like Apollos, he only has a partial message, and he admits that. On the Larry King show, he said, well, I don't want to get into the, the negatives of hell and sin and all that stuff. I do want to preach a, more of a positive message. I've got the transcripts. So he's giving a partial message. To Apollo's credit, he didn't know the whole message. Joe Olstein knows the whole message. Again, not going to say anything good or bad about him, just making an observation. But many Christians are drawn to this man, not giving the whole story, but they're drawn to him. That's a problem. The Bible says that man sees the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. So many people, including the body of Christ, are following appearances, and it's disturbing. I find it interesting that when I look into the, and, you know, I've been to a lot of Bible studies. People read the Bible, and they read about the Antichrist, and they read about his his charisma, same type of person. And they they look at him, and the whole world is, is swayed towards him. They're all following him. Wow, who is like the beast, the Bible says. Everybody says that in unison. Who is like this man? Now, If you look at Apollos, he had his flaws. Osteen has his flaws. Obama has his flaws. Everybody has flaws. This Antichrist, he's not going to have any flaws. He's going to have everybody hooked into what he's saying because he'll be inspired by Satan. His speech and his outward temporal appearance will be flawless, pretty much. But people say, well, how can all those people be so dumb to follow the Antichrist? People are doing it today. God's own people are doing it. That's the, that's the discouraging thing. All you need is three things to become a good leader. And I just summed them up into three A's. Or not a good leader, but a, a leader that will attract people towards you. And I'm not suggesting this, but three. Appearance, articulation, and attitude. If you have those three things down pat, you can amass a following. You know, And we're, we're a nation of sheep. We follow people. Don't follow man. The cool thing is that I think I've inoculated you over the the years so well about not just following somebody that if I tomorrow started coming up with some kooky doctrine and asked you to follow me to South America or something, drink Kool-Aid, I know you wouldn't do it, you know? I know you wouldn't do it because I've inoculated you and that's good. And that's what we're supposed to do. But the bottom line is people are swayed by appearances. There was actually a story I found humorous a few years back of uh, two bank robbers They would come in dressed really nice, very handsome, very well-groomed, and they would set up these small accounts in the bank. And they got to know all the young ladies, all the tellers, and they smile and they would flirt with them. And they they never used a gun. They actually used false signatures and false accounts, and the girls were, were quick to overlook it because they seemed like such nice guys. And they made off with all this money without firing a shot. Isn't that amazing? So not only does man go for appearance, but woman goes for appearances too. Uh, That was, you know, I tried. But the world will be swayed by the Antichrist. Um, 
And the first thing that, and again, going back to Apollos, the first thing that Paul addresses in the Corinthian church. Now, the Corinthian church had problems, 1 Corinthians. They had problems with sexual immorality. They had problems with, um, you know, denigrating the Lord's Supper. They had all kinds of problems. The first thing that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians in the first chapter, you know what it is? The vision. And all the people that followed Apollos. That was the first thing, one of the first things he addresses in the first chapter. Pretty amazing stuff. Now, I want to say this. This is to say, this is not to say that Apollos was bad. Actually, Paul speaks very highly of him. Apollos had a great character. The sin lied on the people that were following him, you see. In verse 26 and 27, we see that because of Apollos' humility and ability to learn from Aquila and Priscilla, his ministry is catapulted even further. And this is what being humble and able to receive correction will do for you. I want to read um, three verses. Proverbs 9, 7 through 9. Proverbs 9, 7 through 9. Proverbs says, He who reproves a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man gets himself a blemish. Do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you, but rebuke a wise man, and the wise man will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and the wise man will become even wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. Our society has a hard time with receiving correction, and even in the church. And that's sad because um, we're, we're hindering ourselves by not receiving that correction. We're told in our society you have to love yourself more. We're all self-centered. We all love to look in the mirror and you know, do things for self. But the, the society is telling us we should love ourselves even more, become even more self-centered and narcissistic. It's pretty sad. But the Bible says that if you correct somebody, you love them. And if you receive that correction, you'll become even wiser. It's pretty amazing. But it's a hard thing for us at times to swallow our pride and to be open to that correction. Apollos was. And we're going to talk about how impressive he was. And it was a lot for him to actually, what a humble guy, to be able to swallow that pride and receive that correction. Know that if somebody comes to you and you've done something wrong and they use the scripture as a foundation and you get mad at them, you're not mad at them. You're, word, you're mad at the word of God. You're frustrated because the word of God is telling you something that you should be doing, but you're not doing it. And that person is just the closest person to you, so you take it out on them. Now, Apollos, okay, think about it. He's uh, charismatic. He's, he has a following. He's preaching in Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla are listening. This husband and wife team, you know, kind of behind-the-scenes people. We've talked about them before, humble people. Apollos comes down, he's done preaching, Aquila and Priscilla, Apollos, you know, can we, can we talk to you for a minute? Sure. So they talk to Apollos and they say, listen, you got a good message, you know, your preaching is great, but you're missing, you know, his grace isn't there. Did you hear about Jesus as the Messiah? All you're preaching is John, John's baptism. Now, Apollos, think about it, in his position, and a lot of people in his position would have done this, they would have said, look at the following out here. Who are you? Beat it. I'm Apollos, you know, go away. But he didn't do that. He listened to them. He took the correction. He learned from them, and he became a better person for it. Pretty fascinating. The moment you can't learn or be corrected or be rebuked by someone else is the moment that God will put you on the shelf. He'll take you. He'll put you in the shelf. He'll close the door. And when you're ready to be used again and you're ready to be corrected, he'll open that cabinet, take you out, blow the dust off you, and he'll set you in service again. Verse 28. An alternate translation of verse 28 um, is that it says, Apollos mightily convinced the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. 
He didn't humiliate them, but he loved them enough to lead them in the truth. With the truth of the full gospel, Apollos' ministry was unstoppable. And, you know, he just was, was dynamic. I mean, he just bore a lot of fruit. So much so that he went from Ephesus and then he went to Corinth and he made an impression there too. But that's why we go verse by verse in the Bible. People ask us, well, how come you don't do topical? How come you don't do it like this? How come you don't do it like that? The Calvary system or the Calvary chapels believe that the best way to teach somebody the word of God is to go verse by verse. Because eventually, if you stay with us 10, 15 years, you'll know the whole Bible and you'll know it well. There's many people who are, have been churched 20, 30 years and they don't know the scripture. There's certain subjects that they don't know at all because they're not taught the full counsel of God. So that's important. Now, just in closing, just a, a few words about Apollos, <laughs> still with Apollos here. Even with all of Apollos' charisma, prior to understanding the full counsel of God, he couldn't lead anyone to salvation. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that something? Apollos was so great and so many people followed him, but he didn't have the message of salvation. And he could not add anything to a person's life. He couldn't add salvation. He couldn't do anything for them. All he could do was preach a nice message. But Paul, by Paul's own lips, when he compares himself, and when Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians about how the Corinthians looked at him, they said his letters are weighty. Whoa, Paul writes a great letter. But when we look, him, we look at him in appearance, he's unimpressive. So Paul, I don't know what he looked like, but apparently somebody would have just walked by him if they didn't know he was the Apostle Paul. Paul, on the other hand, of, Apostle, uh, of Apollos, whose appearance was unimpressive, had the keys to salvation. And that's pretty much where I want to go here in closing, is that it's not about looks. The man who had one of the most profound effects on bringing me to the Lord, okay, was Lloyd. And most of you think, oh, yeah, he's talking about his pastor, Lloyd Pulley. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about a man that when I would work um, in between semesters in college, I would work at a stair factory. Um, you know, the hours were long. It wasn't a great uh, place to work. But, you know, we worked hard. We built, put stairs together, right, like the little elves, Santa's elves. And what happened was there was a man named Lloyd. He was an elderly Jamaican man, frail, you know, glasses, didn't have good eyesight. He was, he was an elderly man, and I think he worked up until the day he died. Didn't have a lot of money. By the world standards, he was a nobody, by the world standards. But every, every lunchtime, he would eat his lunch, and then he'd take a bucket, flip it over, and he'd sit down on the bucket. He'd open up his Bible, and he'd start preaching. And we'd all sit around, gather around, and listen to this man preach. Now, it was another seven or eight years before I came to the Lord, but all throughout my life, from that point, listening to Lloyd, right, that elderly man, I'm sure now he, he's gone to be with the Lord. He, he knows what an effect he's had on me. From that point to eight years, no matter what I did in my life, I thought about this man's preaching. It never left me. He had a profound effect on me. So we talked about a few people here. We talked about Apollos. We talked about Paul. We talked about Obama. We talked about Osteen. And we talked about Lloyd. And what I want to say is if there's anything that we could learn today, and I think it's appropriate for our society. It's to get our eyes off of man and to put them on God. Let's pray.